this summer we're working through the book of Acts. What does that mean? It's not Acts, A-X-E, like a big battle axe. This is the book of action. It's the action of the early church right after King Jesus commissions them to take on that next chapter in God's history of the whole world. Jesus comes, he establishes his kingdom, and now he has entrusted that kingdom, the spread of the good news of that kingdom, to you and I and to all the churches in the New Testament. We are in that era right now, that chapter in history, awaiting the final chapter, which is the return of King Jesus. And between now and then, we have a job to do. It's to spread the good news of King Jesus to every tongue, tribe, and nation. To go, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, to be witnesses where we live, in our region, in our country, and in our world to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8 tells us. And so today we're going to be looking at two chapters of the book of Acts, Acts 19 and 20, as Paul's ministry reaches the city of Ephesus. And Mr. Brian gave us a good outline of the beginning of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. So I'll just, I'll, you know, the kids had a chance to answer some questions. How about the teenagers? I'll give you a softball question here, teenagers, today. Where is Ephesus? So, did I hear somewhere near modern-day Turkey? You guys are geniuses. It's actually in modern-day Turkey. You're brilliant. Man, the, the youth of this church... Adults, little secret that the, the teenagers know, there are usually two correct answers in church. The number one correct answer is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, the life. The second answer, if it has to do with geography, you're pretty safe saying somewhere near modern-day Turkey. If it's in the Bible, you're going to be close. And you are exactly right. It is in uh, western Turkey. In fact, I think we even have a map that we can uh, put up here so you can see Paul. This is on Paul's third missionary journey. What does it mean to be a missionary? It means to be on a mission from God. It means to cross cultural barriers on a mission from God with the purpose of making disciples of all nations. And Paul had a mission. He had a mission given to him by God. He crossed throughout all of Asia Minor, all the Roman Empire, bringing good news. This third missionary journey, he left the city of Antioch, traveled throughout Asia, passed through the city of Ephesus on his way all the way over to Corinth, and then he worked his way back along much the same route on this third journey. But on the return trip, he doesn't actually go through Ephesus to Ephesus, but he gets close, and we're going to find out about that as we go through God's Word today in Acts 19 and 20. Uh, in the first verse, we meet a person named Apollos, who we've also met earlier in chapter 18. Apollos, we find, is from Alexandria, the north part of Africa. He's eloquent, he's competent in the Scriptures, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, he's fervent in the Spirit. And he spoke and taught things accurately concerning Jesus. But like the Ephesian believers, he only knew John's baptism. That baptism of repentance. Repentance means to turn around. And so John had come saying, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You're going down a path of destruction. And there is someone coming after me whose sandals I am not fit to untie. So get ready. Turn from your sin. Turn toward God. And Apollos knew of this baptism of John, a call to repent and turn and go in a new direction. So in, there in Ephesus, there's two believers, two mature believers named Priscilla and Aquila, this couple. And they heard Apollos boldly teaching in the synagogue. And, and then they, after the sermon, they, they brought him aside. They said, Brother Apollos, 
we'd like to explain to you the way of God more accurately. I've had some of you do that for me. I appreciate that ministry, that Priscilla and Aquila ministry. You go, hey, hey, brother, hey, pastor, what about this other verse that you may have overlooked? How does this fit in? Could you explain this a little bit more? Have you thought of this? And that's the ministry that Priscilla and Aquila had, that they were knowing God's word, searching the scriptures, knowing Jesus, and as this fervent man filled with God's spirit began to proclaim boldly, he had this team cheering him on and saying, brother, we can help you improve the ministry that God has for you. And so Apollos became a powerful witness for Jesus. He, he moved on to the region of Corinth, uh, a city in the region of Achaia. We find out more about him in the letters to Corinth that Paul writes. And so he was there powerfully rebuting the Jews in public, refuting them, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. Who's the king? Jesus. And that was the message that Apollos brought. So here in chapter 1 now, Apollos is away at Corinth, and there's ministry opportunities still to happen in Ephesus. So let's read now about some of these Ephesian believers that uh, Mr. Collison has already set up for us here in verse 2. As Paul comes to Ephesus, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? What, does, what is baptism? Well, there's water. There's submersion involved with baptism. Baptism is like a rite of passage. It's like an initiation. It's at the beginning of a new chapter of life. And so for the Ephesian believers, there had been a baptism. There had been an immersion. There had been water involved. And it was a baptism into repentance. They were saying we need to turn from our sin and go in a new direction. And yet, really, they didn't know what direction they were to go in. And so they said into John's baptism, Paul went on to explain. Verse 4, he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they knew, like, oh, this is the path that we've turned from sin and darkness, the path that we've turned to, repenting toward Jesus. Let's get baptized again. Let's be initiated. Let's be born anew into this new path of following King Jesus as the Messiah, as the King, as our Lord. And something dramatic happened as they took that next step of obedience. Verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. We see a powerful demonstration of God present as his word is proclaimed, as Jesus is made known to these followers. And it's just like on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Now in a different city, in a different people group, a different language, there's a repeat of God pouring out His Spirit. There are tongues being spoken. That's a language that you haven't studied and all of a sudden God miraculously gives you the ability to speak that language and it's for the purpose of proclaiming good news. As we saw in Acts chapter 2, Jews from all the region of Rome gathered there as the Holy Spirit was poured out and believers empowered by God's Holy Spirit with tongues of fire on their head, begin to speak in languages they haven't studied. And the hearers there are going, wait a minute, 
That's my language. That's my dialect from my hometown. They're speaking with a northern Minnesota accent. I, I, I'm familiar with this. And they understood the message to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that he's the king, that he's the Lord. And there was repentance that followed. We're seeing a repeat of that happening right here in Acts 19. There's power. There's God's gift being given. There's God's hand being demonstrated here. And so then Paul continues that ministry in Ephesus in verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. What's our kingdom mission? Paul is living it out. Empowered by God's Holy Spirit to go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to make known the truth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Now there, were, there was opposition that came along the way. As we've seen this pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts, there's days when you're worshipped like a god and you have to remind people, no, wait a minute, no, we're just men like you are. This is, there is one God. We come as his ambassadors on this kingdom mission. There's other days that people try to stone you. And this was the norm now for Paul as he ministered the good news of Jesus. And that's where this word but comes in in verse 9 once again. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, in case you're hoping and excited that maybe the way there was referring to our church name, no, it's exact opposite, all right? So there was some bad news happening about the way. Who's the way? John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's where we get our church name from. So it's not that we think we are the coolest church in Southeast Aurora. It just means that we're following King Jesus, the way. Is really another name for Jesus. And so now we've got the followers of the way, those who are following King Jesus. And now you've got people who are stubborn and unbelieving and they're slandering the name of Jesus. They're, saying, they're, they're blaspheming him. They're saying he's not God. He's just another dead revolutionary. And they're stubborn and there's this persistence in unbelief. And so Paul, in that opposition, in that place, he starts a Bible school in Ephesus. And he says, all right, we're going to reason daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And by the end of these two years, Ephesian believers, there's going to be some maturity emerging. There's going to be the ability to know right from wrong. And no matter how loud the mob around you screams and yells that there's a false God to be worshipped, you will know who the true God is. And so Paul sets up a Bible school there in Ephesus and that, that Bible school, it's not exclusive. It's not for one culture, not for one people group. It's, for, it's inclusive. It includes anyone who will come to Jesus and say, I believe. I put my faith and hope in you. I trust in you alone. And this Bible school is not just a Bible school of theory. It's not just a Bible school that deals with people's heads. There's power in this Bible school. Look at the very next verse, 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, for example, so that even 
handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This was a kind of this is a pretty exciting Bible school to be a part of, where people are not just hearing at an intellectual level facts and details about Jesus the Messiah interpreting Old Testament scriptures and their fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they're seeing with their own hands the proclamation that they're hearing with their ears as God is powerfully delivering people from sin and sickness and disease and even evil spirits. And there's a powerful demonstration of this gift that God has poured out. But there's a caution to us in this narrative that Luke is laying out for the early church and for those of us living in southeast Aurora. And that warning comes in this story of the seven sons of Sceva. Let's read through that together. So what's happening now, word is getting out. There's exciting things happening. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. There's tongues. There's prophecy. There's deliverance happening. There's uh, freedom from sickness, freedom from evil spirits. And some people who don't know who Jesus is look at that gift, they look at the hand of God, and they go, I want that. But they skip a very important step, as we'll see. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So what are they doing? They're essentially using the name of Jesus like a magical spell. They don't know Jesus. They haven't surrendered to his lordship. They don't have an understanding that he's the son of God, that he's paid the price of their sins, cleansed them by his blood and his sacrifice. But they're seeing that there's something about when this name Jesus is used that there's a gift that's given. There's power that comes out. I would like that power. I would like that gift. I would like people to see me and say, hey, that's the guy who delivered someone from sickness or from an evil spirit. And so they're trying to use the name of Jesus in a way that brings glory to themselves. So what happens? Well, more specifically, verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom, the evil, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And now listen to this verse. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See, that's what should happen every time the name of the Lord Jesus is used is fear, awe, reverence should fall upon everyone present to recognize him as the Lord of Lords as Constance said up here just a moment ago and as the King of all kings. And then his name should be extolled, lifted up, elevated, glorified for the supreme God that he is, God with us. And yet these sons of the Jewish priest Sceva were trying to draw glory to themselves by seeking the hand of God, by seeking the gifts of God, rather than seeking the heart of God and seeking God himself. 
But at the end of this story, Jesus is lifted on high. His name is magnified. And through news of this, verse 18, listen to what happens among the believers in Ephesus. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's a confessional people of God who turn to Jesus and in that process of turning, still looking back over their shoulder at times at that old way of living, still hanging on to some of those things of value from that old life. And maybe it takes an incident like what happened in Ephesus to open the eyes of the believers, maybe those of us today, that we're looking at some things of value in our lives that our culture would look at and say, that's a valuable thing, don't let go of that. When you turn to Jesus, don't get too extreme about it. Keep one foot in the world as you turn to Jesus. And yet there was a power encounter that opened people's eyes, the eyes of the believers. And this confessional faith that says, you know what, I'm going to be honest about my sin issue. I'm going to be honest about the idols in my life. Honest about the lies that I've continued to believe even as I follow Jesus. Those areas that I have not surrendered and yielded. And I wonder how this story played out there in Ephesus. Because it appears that there was a group of believers who had some magic books. And there was value to these books. Piles of silver in wealth. And was there one person who had that boldness and courage to be the first? That said, you know what? We can't practice this old way of living anymore and still claim to follow King Jesus. We can't kneel before him and declare that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and still hold on to these aspects of our culture that are opposed to the things of God. Was there a first person that lit that fire and threw that first book in? That early adapter that said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to choose this way of confessing sins. It's going to be a risk. It's going to cost me something. And then someone else, another believer, saw that courage and said, you know, I've got to go home too. I've got to, I have some things that I need to lay down And it became a public demonstration. I think really when James in chapter 5 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Plural pronouns used in that chapter 5. That there's a link between us confessing and health spreading throughout the body of Christ. Maybe it's your confession of that old sin that trapped you that now gives you the courage and the accountability by bringing a brother or sister into your life. Not in a way of scorning you and condemning you and saying, seriously, you have magic books? But saying, God can now deliver you from that thing that you've confessed and laid down and burned at a cost. And maybe even inspiring another believer that looks on and is knowing I struggle with that same issue because you had the courage to confess, I do as well. And this rippled out to affect the Ephesian church. It set them on firm footing for the opposition that was to come. The message here of the sons of Sceva and to us as believers, seek the giver, not the gift. 
Seek the heart of God, not his hand. It's not that the gift isn't awesome. It's not that the power of God is not available to us. It's that the power of God comes as we seek God, as we dwell on God's revelation of himself. How does God reveal himself? If only there were a book that he had given us to show us his heart, to show us who he is, that we could know him more and become like him, that our heart would begin to beat like his. Guess what? We have it available. And this is the the words of life. And just as we see here in Acts 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As we spend time immersing ourselves in his word, his Holy Spirit transforms us and renews us and aligns us with the heart of God. And we will see powerful displays of God's hand in our lives and through our lives as we submit ourselves to him. So the Ephesian believers, they've been baptized, they've been empowered by God, they've seen the risks of keeping one foot in the world and now they've confessed and they've repented. Now we're going to get a glimpse of the environment the Ephesian believers find themselves in. Verse 21. This section here, we're going we're gonna to really read three lies. We're going to find three lies. Each paragraph in this next section of, of verses uh, really 23 through 40, there's three different groups of people that are speaking, three different kinds of lies that are confronting the believers there in Ephesus. To set it up here in verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth where Apollos is, And then to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must go also to Rome. That's his next missionary journey. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while longer. So Paul is here in Ephesus for the events that are about to unfold. We don't hear Paul's voice. This next section is not one of those great Pauline sermons where truth is proclaimed. Instead, we're hearing these three lies. And it's only later in chapter 20 that we hear the one truth that confronts all three of these lies. The first lie comes from the mouth of a, an Ephesian silversmith named Demetrius. His lie is essentially this. The gods that we make with our hands are real gods. The objects, the things, the material stuff is a god. That's the lie of Demetrius. About this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The opposition is intensifying. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, find out who she is, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Whenever you mix religion and money, there's the risk of really extreme corruption. And so you have a silversmith whose livelihood depends on these little silver shrines devoted to the goddess Artemis. So these he gathered together, all the craftsmen who are involved in, this, in a similar trade, with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn. So there's some truth in Demetrius' lie. 
He's, he's talking about repentance. This Paul, throughout all of Asia, has persuaded some people to turn away from Artemis, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So he's accusing Paul of a lie when actually what we're hearing is Demetrius espousing a lie. Verse 27, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. Who is this Artemis? We've got a picture of her. You can still see her in Ephesus today. If you travel to modern-day Turkey, western Turkey, you can see artifacts like this of this goddess that they worshipped, a fertility goddess, as you adults can tell by the picture. And this was the goddess that they worshipped. Diana is the Greek name. Okay, so from Greek mythology. And this was, this was what you know, Demetrius, a, a serious man, getting up with his buddies and with a straight face saying, how dare this Paul say that this statue that we made is not an actual God? And you go, if you were there that day in Ephesus, wouldn't you be laughing at him like Kelly is right now? Like seriously? You, you're a silversmith. You made that with your hands and now you're... I think Paul might be right, buddy. And yet the people are deceived and there's this mob psychology that's beginning to take over. They're worshiping this false god. This is the lie that we first encounter, the lie of Demetrius, that gods made with, ha- with hands are gods. Well, an idol is not just a grotesque statue from the first century. An idol is anything that draws all of our devotion, all of our energies, our passions, our thoughts, our priorities, our desires, our affections. It's anything that takes the place of God. God is the only one who deserves all of our affection, all of our hearts, all of our desires. And what we're seeing here in the mouth of Demetrius and in his upholding that silver statue that he and his buddies have made is the exact opposite of what we saw in verse 17. The name of Jesus being extolled. Fear falling upon everyone. Reverence and awe for the one true God, Jesus himself. Now we're seeing that there's another way of living which says, oh, there's lots of gods. It's just a thing. If it's Artemis there in Ephesus, here in America, it's material possessions, it's power, it's sex, it's influence, it's entertainment. What's the God of our culture? And there's a lot of people whose livelihood depends on the worship of that God. And they will band together and they will raise their voices and they'll shake a finger and say, how dare you threaten my livelihood? And here in this story, we're, we're seeing Paul is really in the background. The Ephesian believers, they have wisdom by God's Spirit to know when to speak and when to have a gospel proclamation that it remains silent for a period of time. We're going to see what happens next as now the second lie emerges here in Ephesus. So Demetrius and the silversmiths have said the first lie. 
The gods that we make with our hands are real gods. And now we hear the second lie, which is this lie. The louder you shout, the more true your message is. You ever heard that lie in our culture today? Just put two fingers in your ears and scream as loud as you can and then you've got a really good argument. That's what we see next, verse 28. When they heard this, the crowd, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragged with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So there, Paul and his companions are there present, but they're not speaking. There's accusations being leveled against them. They're not responding. They're not defending themselves. And now they're, they're even being dragged, two of Paul's companions, into the theater. So Paul, verse 30, wished to go in among the crowd. But the disciples would not let him. And they're, they're, we need brothers and sisters in Christ along the journey at times to guide us and direct us and give us wisdom. And I, I believe this was one of those examples where Paul's ministry in Ephesus was to be of a different nature than get up in the angry, screaming crowd right now and die today. There was a longer-term ministry that God had for Paul there in Ephesus. And so the the situation intensifies. Verse 31, even some of the Asiarchs, the the leaders from Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So in the theater, here's the scene. Some cried out one thing, some another. And the assembly was in confusion. Listen to this. Most of them did not know why they had come together. You get a crazy enough crowd of people, it will attract more crazy people. Pretty soon they're, you know, they're, they're screaming over here, greatest Artemis of Ephesus. Somebody else is just screaming about something. And there's other people that are just there because there's banners being raised and shaken. And they're doing people on the street interviews. They don't, don't even actually know the issues that are at play here. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, we don't know who this is, but it's a spokesperson that the mob decides, a portion of the mob decides we'd be okay with this guy speaking for us. And so Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Again, he's trying to get up and like, talk some sense into people and calm them down. And they just scream all the more loudly. You ever feel like our culture mirrors this scene, the second lie in Ephesus, that the louder you shout about something, the more true your position is. And if that opposition has something to say and they're raising their hand, just yell even louder. Gather a gang with you. And we can all scream and yell and shout We could say, there is no objective truth. Truth is all inside the heart of the individual. Shape it like putty in whatever way you like. 
We can say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And as long as we're all shouting that together, we'll be in that echo chamber hearing our own voice reverberating through the room, convincing us all the more that all there is to life is living for the moment. This is pretty common. It's not unique to the city of Ephesus. And so for two hours, they're screaming the things that they've decided to believe and working themselves up into a frenzy. Meanwhile, God has given His Word and His Spirit to His followers and He's placed them in a community together where there's ways that God speaks by His Spirit to one believer that will help you. And you may be the Paul that needs an Asiarch or a follower together with you that says, just a minute, let's not be too hasty to act. Let's listen for a while. And I believe that even as these Ephesians were screaming lies, there was something God was doing in their hearts. Sometimes you need to let a person be red-faced and scream the lie that they believe just so they can hear it with their own ears. And once they've taken a definitive stand on that position that you've suspected all along, your silence combined with God's Spirit working in their heart could be exactly what's needed to draw that person to King Jesus. It may be a process of remembering back to that day when I was a part of the crowd at the theater, screaming, confused, angry, and now I'm looking at the life of this believer, this follower of Jesus, who didn't have to say anything to prove me wrong on that day. And now I come on the right day, at the right time, as God's Spirit draws to ask that question that will lead to surrendering to His Lordship, to to knowing King Jesus for who He really is. Don't be too quick to engage in the social media arguments. It's a losing battle. I've given up. You know, when anyone with a smartphone can reply with just as loud of a voice as I have, no matter how much I've studied and thought things out, I'll just opt out. You can scream and shout together, and God will maybe give you and I those opportunities off of social media to have a conversation with someone and look them in the eyes. Maybe begin with a question. How's that belief that great is Artemis, how's that working out for you in real life? Is that bringing hope? And allow God to work in that relational sort of a way. So now we we encounter the third and final lie here of chapter 19. This is a lie from the mouth of the town clerk, a politician. And really the lie of the town clerk is this. Jesus is a way. Not the way. He's a way. So here's the, the scene with the town clerk. Verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of that sacred stone that fell from the sky? We've got a slide here that you can get a picture of of what that temple to Artemis looked like in Ephesus. The next slide, if we can just skip ahead. This is a model, a replica that's in Turkey today. This is an impressive structure. The town clerk is pointing to it. Say, hey, Ephesians, look, we've got the temple. We've got the image of the goddess herself. Chill out, relax. 
everyone in the world knows that Artemis is awesome. And we Ephesians in particular, relax. Let's go back to the text, verse 36. So because, because we know that Artemis is awesome, we've got the temple to worship her, there's a stone that came out of, there's a meteorite that we've got. Obviously, Artemis is the goddess. Seeing then, verse 36, that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess Look, Ephesians, you can tack a little bit of Jesus onto your worship of Artemis. It doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. Jesus is a way. It's not blasphemy against Artemis to believe in a little bit of Jesus on the side. Verse 38. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. This is a legal matter. Let's get the lawyers, the politicians involved. Just relax. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This may be the most dangerous of all three lies that we've encountered in Ephesus. It's the lie that Jesus, the idea of Jesus is compatible with your old belief system. Confession and repentance are not required. There's no actual life change required. Jesus is just a way. He's an idea and we don't deal with, in the realm of ideas, it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, you believe this, I believe that. What matters is the real concrete stuff that lawyers and politicians deal with. That's the, the most insidious of the lies that we've met there in Ephesus. He's just saying, can't we just all get along? This, this lie exists in our culture too, if you're not aware. It's the lie of political correctness. And the only person that you know you, you should not be politically correct toward is that intolerant, bigoted person who says there's only one way. The way. That person we can all universally agree must be screamed down, shouted down, silenced. Have you heard this lie in our culture? As long as we're all talking like the town clerk, we can all get along. Can it, we can coexist, like the bumper sticker says. We can just present Jesus as a way that doesn't work if he is the creator of the universe if he is the only one worthy of worship if he is the king of kings and the lord of lords then it's not an ego trip that makes him a jealous god it's the only appropriate ordering of the universe he is the creator he is the king before him every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if that's the reality, then the message that Jesus is a way is a distorted, twisted lie. It's not getting people closer to the truth. In fact, it's the very opposite. It fits right in with the Ephesian belief system. 
Yeah, we could, you know, we can worship in a shrine. We can make little silver statues. We can have magic books. We can kind of blend all these things from the pagan world around us. Tack a little bit of Jesus on with it. It'll be fine. And really, we encounter this belief in our culture as well. So in the face of these lies, what is the one truth? We've seen three lies. What is the one truth that Paul proclaims in Ephesus that gives the Ephesian believers the strength to move on to counteract the lies of their culture? Well, a couple of just notes from chapter 20. We're not going to be able to dive into it together. I do encourage you as individuals, as families, couples, life groups, to really dig into both of these chapters. There's a wealth of information here, including a really good case for long sermons. Yeah. There's a sermon where Paul preaches till midnight. A dude falls asleep in the window, falls out, dies. He raises him from the dead. He keeps preaching till dawn. I take that to mean long sermons are good. And you know, even if the sound booth is putting the timer now on the little helper monitor here. Still sticking with that Eutychus story. But we're coming in for a landing here. And in chapter 20, we see a couple of just information details there in, in, the, in verse 1. Where is Paul in all of this? Well, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. He's continuing on his journey. So there's no confrontation to the lies that we've just heard. There's no Paul getting up and setting things straight. He's just like, Ephesian brothers, sisters, be encouraged. I'm out of here. <laughs> I, got, I got more places to go. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. I got to go. And, and now on his return leg, after the whole Eutychus incident, Paul decides to sail past Ephesus. I'm sure they're waiting, like, Paul, please come back. We got major issues here. Demetrius is still here, the silversmiths, the temple to Artemis. We got problems, Paul. Please come back through. Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So from Miletus, a neighboring city, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, now we're going to get a picture. This is the beginning of Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. You'll have to read the rest yourself when you get home. But we'll just read the first few verses. Here's the encouragement that we hear. And in contrast to those three lies in Ephesus, this is the true message that Paul proclaims. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, here comes the truth, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the truth that the true message that Paul has been proclaiming in Ephesus in public. So he's not been shirking from those opportunities to stand before the mob, the crowd, the opposition. He was there, just not on this day involving Demetrius. But during those years that he was running his Bible school at the halls of Tyrannus, and during his ministry, there were times of him publicly proclaiming repentance toward God, turning toward God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
putting faith in, believing in, going all in in your life in a way that says, I reject that old belief system entirely. Not Jesus plus something, but only Jesus all day, every day. And that was the message he'd proclaimed in public and in house to house. Maybe on the day of the opposition that we read in Acts 19, it was one of those days of proclaiming Jesus house to house while the mob is just working itself up into a frenzy and yelling louder. A day to gather together with the believers. Strengthen the church. We need to share our faith with one another. That's how our faith is strengthened. We need times of confession and repentance together. We need to bring a, an inquisitive non-believer into our midst and say, what are your questions? Let's talk about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ one-on-one today, not out in public, but to be willing to do as the Spirit leads in each context among Jews and Gentiles, living among them, doing life together for those years, serving the Lord, sacrificing, declaring, teaching, testifying. These are the activities that Paul has undertaken in Ephesus, and he's leaving the church there on strong footing. He gives some real words of encouragement to the believers who will remain, charges them to remain steadfast, encourages them. He reminds them of the truths they know. He warns them, be on guard. There will be opposition from outside and even from within the church. Cautions them. He prays for them. He embraces them and weeps with them. The end of this chapter. The message I get in this interaction between Paul and the Ephesian elders is that you're not alone on this journey. God has placed other believers in your life and you need them. Paul had Timothy. He had Apollos as a partner in ministry. He had Priscilla and Aquila Aquila that were looking at a young promising man like Apollos and investing in his ministry. He had the others... Names that we don't even know that well that were dragged out before the mob together with him on this journey. And now these Ephesian believers who have protected him when that adversity was there in the market square and now who he is bringing that encouragement to and they're embracing and there's this affection and closeness of sharing life together as fellow believers. It's what gives us the strength to continue to proclaim King Jesus when the mob is shouting lies. Louder and louder. So it gives us the wisdom in knowing how to act. God speaks through the brothers and sisters in Christ that he's brought into our lives. He gives us leaders who will be the first ones to say, okay, I'll lay my life down. I'll stick my neck out. When the mob is looking for someone to drag out, I'll step forward. That's the kind of leadership we see depicted here in Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. And so if you've been trying to go alone on your journey with Christ, you're missing out on the joys of walking linked arm in arm with a brother or sister in Christ along that journey. And you're doubling the amount of sorrow and pressure that you're facing by trying to carry that burden alone. It's time that we let down the walls between us and we become authentic about our struggles, burn some books together if we need to, even if it's costly, and embrace and pray, weep at times, as we see the picture here, beautiful picture in Acts 20. Today, maybe you are a member of that crowd in Ephesus. and You've been shouting a lie that you've almost come to believe. 
You've been, heard, you've been hearing it echoed in our culture. And today God, by His Spirit, is drawing you to Himself. You're seeing Jesus as the Lord of Lords that He is. Today is the day for you to surrender to Him and to kneel that knee today right in the middle of your life and say, I yield to your Lordship today. Today, maybe you're like the believers there earlier in chapter 19 who when you see the power of God demonstrated, there's something within you, an abhorrence toward that sin that you've hung on to, that old lifestyle. And it's a day to say today, I have a book to lay down. I have something that I have valued that I now need to surrender and burn and be done with. God's calling me deeper and he's taking me higher And I'm seeing Jesus for the beautiful Savior that he he is. And in comparison to him, nothing else is of value. If that's you on either of those cases, why don't we stand together and pray for each person in this room. Lord, we thank you. We give you thanks and praise. Lord, that we can gather together as a church family this morning. We thank you for children with families in this room today hearing the truth of your word. And God, we pray for each of us that we would have childlike faith that believes in the words that you proclaim that sees you as the truth, the way, the life, the simple gospel truth that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, our world can become a cacophony of lies. It can get confusing at times with someone shouting one thing and someone else another. And at times we feel like the members of that crowd in Ephesus who don't even really know why we're here. We just know it's loud. Today I pray that as we become hearers of your word it wouldn't remain there but we would also be doers of your word that we would go out proclaiming and declaring and believing and knowing when to remain silent guided by your spirit and wait for that opportune moment to present king jesus and lord all the time sharpening one another caring for one another praying for one another weeping together doing life together as a family pray that you would Empower us to be your witnesses this week that we would seek your heart and then see your hand move in and through us. Lord, that we would desire your word that it would be multiplied in our lives and in our world. We pray, God, that you'd help us to know how to confront the lies of our culture and the lies that we've believed. Lord, for the person today who's being drawn to you for the first time, we pray that today would be a day of joy and freedom as they repent toward you, as they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time and that we as their new brothers and sisters in Christ would walk beside them on this journey. We give you thanks and praise now all in Jesus' name. Amen.